Let me invite you, if you have a Bible now, to open it to the book of Romans. Today we are in chapter 6. Our scripture reading will begin in chapter 6, verse 20, and go through chapter 7, verse 6. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading from Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of these things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death, or for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. This is God's Word. Let us pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you again for the infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God that we are able and privileged to be able to read it, to hear it, to believe it, that by your Spirit we will be able to see it and understand it and be enabled to live according to what it teaches us. And so, Father, we pray now that the same Spirit who inspired this Word would enable the one who speaks to preach the truth of God, and at the same time, the one who listens to lay aside everything that would hinder them from receiving the engrafted Word of God, which is able to save their souls. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now today, we are continuing a message that we began last week regarding being slaves. And we came away from that particular sermon understanding 
that there are really only two slaveries you can have. There's either slavery to sin or slavery to God. There's not a third thing. Everybody is one or the other. Everybody in the center of their being has an ultimate treasure or value. Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. We all have an ultimate concern. We all have a passion for things. And if that is not the Lord Jesus Christ, then whatever we treasure, whatever means the most to us, whatever we're willing to spend our time, our treasure, our talents upon, what we think about in our free time, what we really, really want and will use God to get it is really our God. Now, we can be all formal with our definitions of what idolatry is, but when it gets down to it, you may theologically walk away and say, I'm not an idolater, and be practicing it at the same time. You can, in your heart, functionally live in such a way that what you really want is not so much Jesus. You want Jesus to help you get what you really want. Jonathan Edwards says that is the essence of sin. That is the essence of spiritual desires in his work on true virtue. And so as a result of that, we are learning how Paul begins to demonstrate to his original audience in Rome, this church, this house church as it were, to understand the nature of sanctification. Justification is something that happens outside of us. It is a declaration it is God saying to us, because you have looked away from your sin, you looked away from your self-justification strategies, you've looked away from anything you have to offer or contribute other than your sin, and you've turned to Jesus, and you're now resting the weight of your entire being upon him who bore in his body your sin, was judged for it, received the punishment we deserved, and by his obedience, perfectly fulfilling the law he has given you his righteousness objectively standing before the Lord you are forever under his favor and right with him but at the same time that happens something else happens it's called regeneration God makes us new beings we are born from above we become new creatures in Christ Jesus and what Paul is moving uh, the um football down the field so to speak to start talking about grace working in us personal righteousness our growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ our being changed from degree to degree of glory by the spirit who is the Lord the Holy Spirit begins to transform us. He begins to change us. He begins to conform us to the image of Christ. He changes what we want. He changes what we love. He changes how we think. He changes us inside out. And that's what Paul is talking about. But he has people who understood very well how it worked in Judaism. They understood very well the place of the law in their life. And so their reaction to justification betrayed itself in saying that they had really been misusing the law of God. And so Paul is spending time very carefully talking about the nature of sin and the law of God to help us understand what can easily entrap us in the process of sanctification. 
Those two things are, and I will preach on these the next two weeks, number one is legalism, and I'm absolutely convinced that every one of us struggle with that or don't know we have it, but it's there. And the other one is antinomianism, lawlessness, license. We don't struggle with that as much as we embrace it sometimes. <laughs> and that's terrible. That's terrible. And I'll preach on that too. But today, we're going to finish up chapter 6, get into chapter 7, because chapter 7 is about to get crazy. It's one of the hardest chapters in all of the Bible to understand and interpret. And I've been doing this for 45 years. I think I got my decade right. 45 years. And do I completely understand what Romans 7, verse 7 and following to the end of the chapter is talking about? Yes, sort of, but not really. Not as well as I would like to understand it. But this will be another stab at it. But to say that, let's begin to plow through, beginning in verse 19 of chapter 6 with that introduction. Christian conversion is too wonderful of a reality and experience to be accurately summed up and described in a single analogy. So Paul issues an almost apologetic explanation for his use of the slavery metaphor. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. That's chapter 6, verse 19a. We need help to grasp the wonder and implications of what it means to be united to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul continues to make use of this slavery imagery. He has shown us that the origins of slavery to sin and to God are very different, as we have seen. And in the rest of verse 19, he says the development of those slaveries are similar. Next, in the following verses, he teaches us that their results are a total contrast. So point number one in your outline is death or life. In a sense... Being a slave to sin does not or does bring you a certain measure of freedom, but only from the control of righteousness. Let's say that you're a slave to sin, and in reality, that's how you live. And therefore, you determine for yourself what right is, what wrong is, and how you're going to live. You don't read the Bible. You don't consider what the Bible teaches. You are the master of your fate. You're the captain of your soul. You're running the show. You decide for yourself how you're going to live. Therefore, you write your own law. But what Paul is very careful to say here is if you decide to do that, you're free from everything the Bible has to say about living righteously before God in Christ, but the choice is going to do you in. It will destroy you living lawlessly living under the power of sin and the mastery and slavery of sin does not build you up does not make you beautiful does not help you find glory does not help you to find power for living living under the mastery and slavery of sin is self-destructive Sin does us. We don't do sin. Sin does us. Sin destroys us. Sin takes away. 
any glory we may ever know or have. And so it's an either-or proposition. When someone says that they are rejecting Christianity because they want to be free, they are right only in the narrow sense that they're free from having to live in a way that will most satisfy and fulfill them. In every other way, they are slaves. After all, Paul asked these Christians, what benefits did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Listen to me. Look at your unbelieving life and your unbelieving heart. What benefits did you receive? You got shame, but shame is no benefit. Shame is awful. And so Paul is making a compelling case that even though you may convince yourself into believing that I live for myself, I'm Mr. Autonomy, I am self-ruling, I am a law unto myself, and I make the decisions I want to live, and you may say, and I'm truly free from all that church stuff, and all that Christianity stuff, and all that morality, and all I would say to you is, my dear brother or sister, my heart goes out to you because you are committing spiritual suicide on the installment plan and one day you will die it will kill you and your life will be empty i read a book years ago called the hole in our souls and this book basically described that everybody has a sense of lack a sense of unconnectedness a sense of dissatisfaction a sense of Everything's not coming together to make a whole, a sense of disintegration. And so Paul is making the case here that you may deceive yourself into thinking you're really free, but you're not. You're the one who's really enslaved, and the ones who are slaves to God are really free because he made us. We are his creatures, and he created us for his glory, and he knows how to live in ways that will enhance and develop us, not destroy us. The only answer that can be given is those things result in death. Whatever idol you may choose to worship, whether it's power or pleasure, you live for power, you want to be in control, you like running things, your whole life is about you and you being in control and not answering to anybody. Or you may live for pleasure. Maybe you're addicted to pornography. Maybe you're addicted to other things. But your whole life is about finding pleasure, avoiding pain, finding pleasure, and living for that. That may be your whole life, but it will do you in. And you know in your gut it will. Or you may be living for comfort. You just want everybody to leave you alone and let you be and live for yourself. And that's the prescription for misery. Or you may be living for approval. Not approval from everyone, but from people who matter to you, people who you think are cool, people who you think are, are people that are taken seriously, people who are regarded highly in our world. And you think, if I could just have the approval of these certain significant others in my life, then my life would work. Then I would feel good about myself. Then I would know I'm somebody. No, it won't. That is an abyss. Human beings can never give you the sense of approval your heart craves. Can't do it. If you get it every day, can't do it. 
You want more, and you want more, and it controls your experience. And there are others. I could go on and on listing every motivation toward idolatry that's found in the fallen heart. But if we do that, there's a price to pay, and it's called death. And it feels like death because we keep the insanity going. We do the same things over and over, expecting different results under the mastery of sin. And, and it's like beating your head against the wall. Wake up. Your life is undone. And you need a Savior. You need a new master. One who loves and has compassion for you. So how does that bring death to us? Ultimately, sin brings condemnation and separation from God for eternity. Dan just talked about in his preparation for our confession of sins, the holiness of God's nature. That you cannot be in his presence with sin, your sin. That he is of purer eyes than to behold evil in an approving sense. He cannot look upon iniquity. And so what it means to live for myself, to write my own script, to live my B-movie out. <laughs> Best we can do, won't make it to the box office, it'll have to stream. <laughs> so sad. So how does sin bring death? Ultimately, it brings what the Bible calls the second death. But Paul is talking of a death these Christians used to experience, a death that nonbelievers know now as well as one they will know in the future. He is referring to the brokenness of life. Here's how that works. If you don't obey the law of God, you become a slave to selfishness, lust, bitterness, pride, materialism, worry, fear, drivenness, etc., etc., and that's just the truth. The specific enslaving sins depends on whatever particular bottom line you have offered yourself to instead of God. For example, if you are enslaved to approval, you will constantly experience self-pity, envy, hurt feelings, and inadequacy. If you are enslaved to success, you will experience a drivenness and a fatigue and a worry and fear and so on. Anything you worship besides God promises much but delivers worse than nothing it's a slavery a constant treadmill of seeking to grasp to keep hold of something which can never really deliver the only benefit of idolatry is brokenness And so the results of slavery to God are a complete contrast. The benefit is holiness, and the result is eternal life, verse 22. Again, Paul gives us the present and a future focus. People who offer themselves to obedience grow in the fruit of the Spirit. And anyone who is awash in the love, joy, self-control, kindness, and so on, experiences liberty now and can look forward to enjoying it fully in eternity. After all, sin is a master who always pays on time and in full. The wages he pays is always death. We just get sucked up into it. We get, I mean, what did 
Barnum say, P.T. Barnum, there's a sucker born every minute. That's more than just a reason to go to the circus, huh? I mean, why do we keep thinking that idol is going to pay off? We enter into a covenant of works with our idol, and we say to our idol, if I just do what you demand of me, then I will have what I've always wanted. And he never pays you, ever, anything but brokenness and death. And that's what Paul is trying to communicate to this audience about the power and nature of sin and the deliverance from sin. After all, sin is a master who always pays on time and in full. Sin pays out what we deserve for our work for him. On the other hand, slavery to God leads to eternal life in Jesus our Lord. Paul's meaning here is not that just as sinful work brings death, righteous work merits life. No, he's not saying that. Not at all. Sin gives us what we deserve, but eternal life is only and always the gift of God. Serving him does not win us salvation, however good our service is. We can only say we are unworthy servants who have only done our duty, Luke 17.10. But those who know they have received the wonderful gift of God, eternal life, have a new master, a master who offers the fulfillment of working for him. That's where life comes from. On the other hand, mastery to sin is death, and yet mastery, slavery to Christ is real life. You know, eternal life is not just a life of duration. It's not quantitative. It's qualitative. Eternal life begins now. It is a quality of life that even now is far better than anything anyone could expect because of our sinfulness, but ultimately will be life beyond description. We will live forever and ever and ever and ever in the best new heavens and new earth in the presence of the one who has approved of us and loves us most and taken us in to be his. And we will bow and worship and serve and love. I told a guy the other day at the gym, he was talking to me, and I said, I invited him to church. He said, I don't go to church. I said, well, you're not going to want to go to heaven either. And he looked at me and said, why? Do I have to go to a church to be in heaven? I said, no, nah, but heaven's going to be constant church, and you will hate it. <laughs> he looked at me and said, is that what you preachers do? I said, I don't know, but that's what I do. <laughs> he laughed about it. He's an Episcopalian. They, they just rock along. He's also a lawyer. He always asks me if I talk about him in sermons. So I'll have to tell him tomorrow that I did. <laughs> have a lot of conversations with unbelievers, because I love unbelievers. I don't hate unbelievers. I remember what it's like to be an unbeliever. Uh, I don't despise them. I don't, you know, Jesus always seemed to be, like to be around those people more than he did the religious people. Jesus did not care for the Pharisees and the righteous people, the self-righteous people. They annoyed him. And he was sharp with them and contentious with them and always arguing with them. But in his heart of hearts, he's trying to expose them to the fact is, just because you think you're righteous doesn't mean you are. What qualifies you for heaven is to admit that you have no righteousness of your own. You have no goodness of your own to contribute. That's what qualifies you for the presence of God. Hmm. 
And we think it's just backwards, don't we? So, we've got to get to this marriage business and the law here. Let me sum it up. Chapter 6, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. And we have a new master and a master who offers us the fulfillment of working for him. Paul now, in the first six verses of chapter 7, gives a second answer to the question of chapter 6, verse 15. Does the gospel leave you free to live in any way you choose? Paul says, meganoito, absolutely not, no. You can either be married to the law or married to Christ, but you cannot be unmarried. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, theologians have wrestled with it. I'm going to give you my take on it. In chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, Paul gives an illustration of a basic fact. The law only binds those who are alive. Death breaks the law's power. Marriage is a binding legal relationship. But it's only binding if both husband and wife are alive. The law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. If either dies, both are freed from the law of marriage. They are no longer bound. In the wife's case, her husband's death is what makes the difference between another relationship that she has being adulterous or a legitimate marriage and vice versa. But in verses 4 through 6, Paul applies this to us. While it is the husband's death that frees the wife to remarry, in our case, it is our death in Christ that frees us to remarry. We have the bondage and bond between us and the law has been broken, done away with. We'll explain what that means in a minute. Because you better believe the law has a place in the life of a Christian. I'm not saying that at all. But we need to understand Paul's analogy here. And it's not completely parallel, but the principle is the same. Becoming a Christian is a complete change in relationship and allegiance. What an incredible metaphor. We are married to Christ. To be a Christian is to fall in love with Jesus and enter into a legal yet personal relationship as comprehensive as marriage. Now you know that when you get married... No part of your life goes unaffected. So though Christians are now not under the law, they have every aspect of their lives changed by the coming of Jesus Christ. No area is untouched. Being married to Christ means is the final answer to the question, can a Christian live as he or she chooses? No, because we are in love with Christ. We're married to him. I don't know if you're married or not, but you know if you're married, your life changes. I think it was Kramer talking to Jerry one day, and he says, when you marry somebody, they're always there. They're always there. You get up in the morning, she's there. You sit down to eat breakfast, she's there. You go to work, come back home, she's there. You eat dinner at night, she's there. You go to bed at night, she's there. When you wake up, she's there. And being married to Christ means he's always there. He's with you. He's in you. He's united to you. Marriage does entail a significant loss of freedom and independence. You can't simply live as you choose anymore. 
A single person can make decisions unilaterally, but a married person cannot. There's a duty, there's an obligation, there's a covenant. But on the other hand, there is now the possibility of an experience of love and intimacy and acceptance and security that you could not have any other way. Because of this love and intimacy, our loss of freedom is a joy, not a burden. In a good marriage, your whole life is affected and changed by the wishes and desires of the person you love. You get pleasure from giving them pleasure. Boy, that dawned on me about 20 years ago. I was a little late to the party, huh? <laughs> no, it just means that I can't be selfish. Can't be thinking of myself first. But one day it dawned on me that the greatest pleasure I get in marriage is giving my wife pleasure in whatever way that is. I, that was a revelation to me. Because one would think the way you get pleasure is get your needs met. That's what's wrong with some of your marriages. You're too busy thinking about your own needs not being met and you're too reticent to give yourself to meeting the needs of your mate. You want a recipe for disaster? Demand that your needs be met. You do that, you'll never know love. You'll never know joy. You'll never know intimacy in a marriage. It's about giving. If you don't feel like you're giving 100%, you're not even in the ball game. Okay? That's what marriage is. It's a giving, it's a giving, it's a giving. But I feel like I do all the giving. Well, keep on giving. Now Paul has given us the ultimate answer to how Christians live. We are not under law in that we don't obey the law of God out of a fear of rejection. In other words, we aren't using the law as a system of salvation or a way of acceptance or access to God, a ladder up to him. No, Jesus' perfect life and death are the ladder up to God and we are accepted in him. You remember Jacob's ladder? Remember all the singing about climbing Jacob? Nobody climbs Jacob's ladder, but the angels. The ladder is the way for Christ to come to us, not for us to climb to him. That's the nature of Christianity. It's always God coming to us. So let's bring this wonderful message to, toward a conclusion. We're now ready to talk about pleasing Christ. Verses 5 and 6 are the parallel verses in Paul's marriage imagery to chapter 6, 1922 in the slavery metaphor. Married to the law and dominated by our sinful nature, our sinfulness was aroused by the law. Law in the hands of the power of sin and its mastery on our lives only aggravates, uh, exacerbates, intensifies disobedience. You see, one of the things we don't understand, this is one of the things the Jews believed. The Jews in Judaism believed that the law was really able to stop you from sinning. If you would just obey the law, it would stop sin, it would kill sin, and you'd be done. Torah was everything. I remember I've been to a couple of bar mitzvahs and a couple of bat mitzvahs, and one thing they do in that ceremony is they'll, they'll open the, the cabinet behind them and they'll bring out a scroll, the Torah, and they walk around holding the Torah and they're kissing the Torah and worshiping the Torah. Everybody's jumping up and down about the Torah. 
And I'm looking at my life and I go, I thought what we jump up and down about is not the Torah, but Jesus. <laughs> That's the clearest difference. Torah can't save you. It can't deliver you. Law has no power. None. Only to condemn. Has no power to change us. And so... Paul will talk more about this in Romans 7, 7 and following. And so with our sinful desires inflamed, we bore fruit, which we have already seen, led to both present and eternal death. Conversely, but now we have been released from our old marriage through our own death in Christ, married to Christ, and indwelt by his spirit, we serve in the new way, a theme upon which Paul will focus in Romans 8. To understand Paul, you just got to keep reading. He will explain what he means later on. But what Paul is setting us up for is the wonderful gift and ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that empowers us and enables us to be obedient. And that is the new covenant gift of the Spirit who penetrates our being, who indwells us, who gives us desires and power to overcome so does the christian ignore the moral law of god not at all we now look at it as the expression of god's desires he loves honesty purity generosity truth integrity kindness and so on we now use the law to please the one who saved us so we're not under the law that is we're not married to it we're married to christ but we're seeking to please him and the way that we please the one who has saved us is by being obedient, desiring to please him. Um, so we are not under the law. We are not married to it. We're married to Christ. We're seeking to please him. And so the law's precepts are ways to honor the one we love. They are now not a burden. We now have a new motivation, love for our husband, to obey in a new framework, acceptance on the basis of Christ, not us fulfilling the law. Someone might say, well, I thought I was saved totally by grace and could never be rejected. I'd lose all incentive to lead a holy life. The answer is, well, then all the incentive you now or ever have had is the fear of rejection. That's not a good motive. Or pride, I'm not the kind of person who would live that way. You get a whole new set of motivations with Jesus. We obey who we offer our service to. We live to please who we are married to. We were once slaves to sin, we obeyed it. We were once married to the law, it controlled our sinful natures. Whether pursuing self-righteousness, religion, or self-centered license, we lived to please it. But our death in the body of Christ has changed everything totally and eternally. We are slaves to God. How could we and why would we sin? We belong to Christ as his bride, knowing he's died for us. How could we and why would we not live to please him out of gratitude toward him? It is the Christian's identity and the Christian's relationship to God that is ultimately the answer to Paul's question in chapter 6, 15. If you're not under law but under grace, does that lead you to sinning? And the answer is no. It leads you to such a passionate heart 
to live for him. I close with the following quote by John R. W. Stott. He said this, Is the law still binding on the Christian? The answer to that is no and yes. Let me repeat that. Is the law still binding on the Christian? The answer to that is no and yes. No in the sense that our acceptance before God does not depend on it. Christ and his death fully met the demands of the law, so we are delivered from it. It has, as a means of salvation, it no longer has any claims on us to condemn us for sin. It is no longer our Lord. Yes, in the sense that we still serve. But the motive and means of our services have been changed. Why do we serve? Not because the law is our master, and we have to, but because Christ is our husband, and we want to. It's all a difference in the world between that and the other. Do you want to please him? Is that the number one passion of your heart? Are you still trying to use him to get what you really want? Man, I hated the time I read that in Jonathan Edwards. I was going along thinking I was a pretty spiritual guy. And then he nailed me to the wall. He nailed me by the, to the wall when he showed me that I was really more interested in using Jesus to get my ultimate concern addressed, which was the glory of me. Pastor, are you really a big, fat glory hog? Yeah. In and of myself, I can be that way. But now that I have seen Jesus and him only, who he is and what he's done for me, my ultimate concern and passion, though I struggle, is to please him. I want to please him. I want to be well-pleasing to him. So Stott goes on. The motive and means of our services have changed. Why do we serve? Not because the law is our master, and we have to, but because Christ is our husband, and we want to. Not because obedience to the law leads to salvation, but because salvation leads to obedience to the law. The law says, do this and you will live. The gospel says, you live, so do this. How do we serve? Not in the oldness of letter, but in the newness of the spirit. That is not by obedience to an external code, but by surrender to an indwelling spirit. What about you? In the heart of hearts, do you live to please him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can repent. We can always come back home, and we can repent. The only people who don't repent are people who don't think they're wrong, and that was the Pharisees. We have no record of Pharisees repenting. Self-righteous people don't repent. People who are broken do. People who see the glory and beauty of Christ do. The suitability of his love for us that we are united to him, we are married to him, and our life's desire is to please him. So, Father, as we continue to worship, may we respond to this glorious gospel message by giving back a portion of that to which you have entrusted to us. And may it be used in ways that will lift up the name of Jesus and glorify him, and we pray in his name. Amen.